If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew 7. That's where we're going to be today, Matthew 7. One of the earliest memories in my life, it's a little foggy, but I can still make it out. One of, one of my earliest memories, I was around the kitchen table, we had just finished eating dinner, and I don't know how it happened exactly, but I got down beside the table and I saw an electrical socket on the wall. And I thought in my three or four year old boy brain, I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to take a fork and stick it inside and just see what would happen. And so I grabbed my fork and I got down in front of the light socket and I started to, to jam it in there. And my mom rounds the corner, she sees me and she says, stop! And I did stop. I also cried because she hurt my feelings. It was really rude of her to do that. <laughs> I was really upset. Now, why did my mom react the way she did? And all of you parents would react the same way. Why? Because I was in danger. And she was concerned. And out of love, she warned me. Now, the volume of my mom's warning was proportionate to the degree of danger that I was in. My mom didn't say, hey, Matthew, you might want to think about not doing that and take up a different activity. She, she didn't do that. She said, stop, because I was in danger, and the danger was something I couldn't see, and it was way more serious than I realized. Today, metaphorically, Jesus is going to scream as we look at Matthew 7. And he's calm. He doesn't actually raise the volume of his voice, but we're going to hear an intensity out of Jesus that is sobering. Honestly, it's, it's chilling. But it's proportionate to the danger that we're in, according to Jesus. There is a danger that many of us, we don't see, and it's way more serious than we realize. And out of love, out of love, Jesus is going to warn us today. Now, before we get to the warnings, I want to look at Matthew 7, verse 12. This is where we left off last week. Jesus, he says, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we've been going through over the past three months, this is an extremely important moment. Because three chapters before this, almost 100 verses, Jesus references the law and the prophets. And then here, he references the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Old Testament, again. And scholars point out how those two references form an inclusio, or bookends to the main content of the sermon, which is essentially, it's an exposition of Old Testament revelation. That's what Jesus has been taking us through. And... This verse sums up everything Jesus has said to this point. He says, so in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. It sums up everything I've said to you today. In other words, Jesus, he's saying to us, if we get this, everything falls into place. And if we miss it, we've actually missed the whole point of the sermon. Now, 
Many of us were familiar with this saying. It's called the golden rule. It, chances are, even if you've never been in church, you know the golden rule. And because of its familiarity, it kind of loses its effect on us. But this was new when Jesus said, this was groundbreaking. This was brilliant. The closest thing to this was the inverse of this statement. Confucius, about 500 years before Jesus, he had a saying that went something like, whatever you do not want done to you, do not do to others. So you don't want to be murdered, don't murder. You don't want to be stolen from, don't steal. And there's even rabbis who are contemporaries with Jesus, like Rabbi Hillel, who had similar sayings. Whatever you don't want done, don't do. It's a little bit like in the medical field, how... Medical students, they have to take the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. That attitude is very different from what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not interested in his followers just doing no harm. You can do that and totally miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough, according to Jesus, to just not be bad and to avoid big ticket sins like, like murder. Jesus, he puts this in the positive, in the proactive. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And, and when Jesus said this, when he phrases his ethic this kind of a way, it immediately eliminates all the loopholes <laughs> that we have because we never stop wanting to be treated with love and respect and patience and kindness, am I right? We never stop. And therefore, Jesus is saying, you can never stop seeking to treat others with love, respect, patience, etc. Now, if this verse sums up the Sermon on the Mount, what follows is the conclusion. And as Jesus concludes this masterful sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, he's going to give his hearers and us a series of warnings. And these are not subtle. <laughs> Again, the, you know, the people who want to put Jesus in the category of just a nice, wise, ethical teacher, they have to avoid places like we're looking at today. And so we're going to look at three warnings today and the last one next week. And I'll just tell you today, this is dense, it's deep water, so buckle up, we're gonna move fairly quickly. Jesus, he says in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. These are sobering words, aren't they? And frankly, they're scary Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The, the key interpretive question in these verses is what is the gate that Jesus is referring to and what is the road? Well, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus, he tells us what the gate is. Look at John 10, 7. Jesus, he says, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus himself is the gate that leads to life. And he's the only one there is. There is no other gate. In fact, he says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gate. But in Matthew 7, Jesus is communicating more than that. It's clear that the gate and the road are connected in Jesus' mind. Look again at the verse. Small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, what is the road 
that Jesus is talking about that leads to life. This is where it is so important that we look at these verses in context, okay? Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to disciples. We know that from Matthew 5, 1, and this is not the 12 disciples. That word disciple, it means student or or learner. And in context, this was everybody who was following Jesus from the previous chapter who wanted to learn from him. Okay, so this is two disciples. Jesus sits down assuming the position of a rabbi. He's teaching people. Now, what is Jesus teaching? He's teaching what it means to follow him. That's why we've called this series The Way of Jesus. That's what Jesus has been doing for the past 100 verses, saying this is what it means to follow me. And and now, as he begins his conclusion, Jesus says, narrow is the road that leads to life. Well, that, that word road in Greek, it's the same word that's also translated way in other places in the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Acts, when the first Christians are described as the way, this is the word that's used. So what is the road or what is the way? In context, I believe, after wrestling with this all week, this, this way, this road he's referring to is following Jesus As our master, we're his disciples, it's following Jesus by doing what he says to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, narrow is the way. Few find it. And again, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it makes sense. I mean, what Jesus has to say about loving your enemies, about sexuality, about money, about broken relationships and anger and resentment, it is hard. It's narrow. And few find it. Now, when I say this, a thought that, that might be coming up inside of you is, wait, wait, Matt, are you saying that following Jesus, doing what he said to do, o- obedience, that that is what leads to salvation, that I'm saved by what I do, saved by works, and I want to be crystal clear. No, I am not saying that. We never earn God's love or acceptance through obedience, and we never could We experience forgiveness and eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. He is the gate. It's not not our good works. But life, when Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to life, life here is not just heaven. And that is the main interpretive mistake, I think, that people make when they come to this text. Jesus himself, he told us what life was. John 17, Jesus says, now this is eternal life. What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's life. It's relationship with God. Jesus did not just come to give us life after death so we could go up to the floaty place when we die. He came to give us life now. We may live abundantly, as John 10.10 says. And we experience life through knowing and following Jesus. This is what he's saying. He's saying to his disciples, after everything he's taught, he's saying, guys and girls, I am the access point to life. And following the road that I've laid out for you, following the way of Jesus, it's hard. It's difficult, but it is the only way to experience life. In the same way that Moses addresses the people of God, Israel, Deuteronomy 30, 
after Moses has expounded the law, Moses, he says to, to the people of God in Deuteronomy 30, I set before you life and death. Love the Lord your God. Walk in obedience with him and you will live. Jesus now, as the new Moses, he's saying after all of his teaching, he's saying to the people of God, to us, he's saying, I set before you life and death. Come to me, follow me and live. And none of us will follow Jesus perfectly. None of us. And that's why it's so important that we hear these words of Jesus in the context of the whole of his teaching. Never forget how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. Blessed are those who know they are bankrupt spiritually and therefore they rely completely on God's grace. Because here's, here's the truth. You cannot live the Sermon on the Mount and neither can I. But the grace of God is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's grace. And that is true for salvation. That is also true for obedience. The only way we ever obey and live the kind of life Jesus invites us into, it's by God's grace and through his spirit. And we'll never be perfect. But by his grace, we can be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And, and as we seek to follow the narrow way of Jesus, that's the invitation, the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to have this image in your mind. The grace of God, it functions like guardrails. You're not gonna fall off the narrow way into a ditch. Now, God's grace will hold you and it will keep you. It's so vital that we get that. So what's the warning in this first section to us today? I, th I think it's simply this. There is one gate and one way that leads to life, and it's Jesus. All others lead to ruin, destruction. And, and this statement, by the way, this is highly offensive in our culture today, isn't it? Because this is exclusive and Exclusivity is the cardinal sin of our culture right now. And this is exclusive, saying there's one way. But the truth is, all religions and all ideologies and worldviews, all of those are exclusive because inevitably, any religion, any belief system that has a claim on what, what's true is basically saying some people are right, some people are wrong. But this is exclusive. The unique thing about Jesus and about Christianity is that it's radically inclusive at the same time. This is why Tim Keller calls the gospel the most exclusive inclusivity that there is. Because Jesus says to his disciples and to all of us today, whosoever can come, anyone can come. And so yes, he's the only way, but all are invited to come to him. And if you're in the room and today you're, you're skeptical, that's okay. I, I want you to think about this. If Jesus is right, if there really are two paths, one that leads to life and the other that leads to death, then Jesus pointing that out to us is the most loving thing he could do. 
It's, it's gracious, it's compassionate for Jesus to say, you know what, all roads lead to the same place. You do you. That would be unloving, would it not? That would be cruel. Jesus is not bigoted by saying, I'm the only way. He's saying, I love you, and I want you to experience life, and here it is. And he's trying to pull us out of the car before we drive off the cliff. That's this right here, isn't it? But Jesus, he, he keeps going, and he gives us another warning. Look at the second warning. Verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, what is a prophet? In the Bible, a prophet is someone who speaks for God, And Jesus is saying that there will be people who claim to be speaking for God, but they're not. And that's who we're warned about. And this is important. Jesus, he's not saying, watch out for everyone who's telling lies. Watch out for the people in the world who are trying to corrupt your values. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, watch out for the people who claim to be speaking for God, but in reality, they're not. And he says two things that are really interesting about false prophets here. One, he says they're deceptive. False prophets don't look like false prophets. They look like sheep. They come in sheep's clothing. And secondly, Jesus says they're dangerous. I mean, what does he compare them to? Ferocious wolves. Pretty sure that's bad if you're a sheep. So if if false prophets don't look like false prophets, how do you know? How do you recognize them? Jesus, he tells us, verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You know, grapes and figs are really common and important to the agricultural life in Palestine. And thorn bushes and thistles were also common and a major nuisance. So he's speaking in language they understand. He says, likewise, verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, the key word in this warning is the word fruit. Shows up seven times. So what is this? Well, sometimes the fruit, you know, in the New Testament talks about somebody's fruit. It's talking about their words. There's other times like John 15 where it's a reference to their life to their character. I think that this is general. I think both are in view here. It's, it's somebody's words, but it's also and maybe primarily their character. Because again, Jesus's point is that false prophets look and sound like the real thing. They're in sheep's clothing. But what comes out of their life, Jesus says, is bad fruit. Bad fruit. And we know what good fruit is, don't we? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what good fruit looks like. You see, someone can speak for God. This is so sobering to think about this. Someone can speak for God and even be extraordinarily gifted, okay, and have sound doctrine and be prideful, and unloving and unkind. Just because I'm up here teaching what God says does not mean, by itself, that does not mean that I am walking with God. Just because somebody in a book that you read or in a sermon that you hear 
They, they, they use spiritual content. It does not mean that there's fruit in their lives. To know that answer, you actually have to ask the people really close to them. So giftedness does not equal fruitfulness. This is so important. And, you know, sometimes, I, I just say leaders and teachers and influencers spiritually, sometimes we deceive ourselves in this. Because what gets attention is our giftedness, not fruitfulness. You know, after sermons, I'll speak with people and I'll say, man, that was great and thank you and God used you. That had an impact on my life and thank you for your ministry. I've never had anyone come to me after a sermon and say, you know what? The way you were patient last night with your son when he asked you a million questions, and that was amazing, Matt. And no one can say that, right? And I'm not saying encouragement's bad. Encouragement's good, it's helpful. But again, the, the, what can happen for us is we begin to prioritize what gets praised. And it's not our inner life. It's not our connection with Jesus and our fruitfulness. So speaking for God, it does not mean you're being transformed by the Spirit of God. And that's the standard, by the way. I mean, the standard here, it's not like Jesus is saying, only listen to the prophets who are perfect. <laughs> you know, praise God that that's not the, the standard. Nobody's Jesus but Jesus. And you get close to any teacher, leader, you're gonna see warts. But the question is, is this person, is this prophet, are they being transformed by the spirit of Jesus over time? That's the question. Now, most of us today, we don't live in close proximity with a lot of the spiritual influencers in our lives. It's not like you, you read a book and you sit down for coffee with the author. And so there's probably a lot of voices that you hear about spiritual things and you don't know. You don't know what it's like to be around them at the dinner table. So how do you know? How do you know what the, the fruit is? Well, I wanna give you one more aspect of fruit. It's, it's a leader or a teacher's words, it's their character, but it's also the fruit of their influence in the lives of other people. This is part of fruit. In the summer of 1805, there was a local Native American gathering with chiefs and warriors, and they met in Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation by a missionary. And after that presentation, one of the chiefs, he responded, and he said, we've been told that you've been preaching in this area, in Buffalo Creek, New York, for a while, right? The preacher said, yes, right. And then the chief said something fascinating. Listen to this. He said, we know the people that you've been talking to, because this is where we live. We're going to wait a while to see what effect your preaching has upon them. And if we find that it does them good, makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, then we'll consider what you have said. Here, here's a question I want to ask you. I want you to really think about this. The spiritual influencers that you let into your heart and life podcasts you listen to, what you read. What is the fruit in you? And, and is it the fruit of the Spirit? Is it love, joy, peace? Or instead of love, is it hostility towards people who are different from you? 
Is it peace or is it anxiety? Do you come away from listening to certain authors, speakers, with a sense of anxious dread about the future? Is it kindness? Is it anger towards other Christians who are different or maybe non-believers? There is a lot of media that we all consume that does not contribute to bearing fruit, good fruit in our lives. And we have to be discerning. I mean, some of us today, we need to stop listening to certain things. And it's not because it's inappropriate or it's doctrinally wrong, but it's making us, making you into a more unloving, anxious person. So part of this is we've got to guard who gets access to us because who we listen to, who we take in, that's gonna bear fruit in us. And so, you know, three questions I wanna give you as you think about the voices, the inputs in your life, three questions. Do they sound like Jesus? Do they look like Jesus? Again, not perfection. Are they being transformed? And then third, do I look more like Jesus as a result? of their influence in my life. I dare you to ask these questions about the things that you listen to that occupy your mind. And just for me even, this has changed this week. I I, I thought I need to listen to some different voices in some different areas. So that's the warning here. Jesus says, we live in a world where there's people who say, this is what God says. And Jesus says, they're wrong. But you'll know them. You'll know them by their fruit. And then the third warning Jesus gives us, this is the most scary of them all. You know, our R.C. Sproul, he called these the most terrifying words that ever come from the mouth of Jesus, what we're about to read. Jesus, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? We've talked about this some, but just as a review, it's not heaven The kingdom of heaven includes that, but it's more than that. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the reign and rule of God, okay? The reign of God. And we experience that now in part through submission to Jesus because wherever the king is, there's the kingdom. But the fullness of the kingdom is still to come. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. The fullness of Jesus' reign is not realized here on earth. I mean, have you read the news? And it's that future sense of the kingdom coming that Jesus has in mind here based on what he says in the next verse. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, what day? The day of judgment prophesied about in the Old Testament, Isaiah 2, also Revelation. It's when Jesus comes back and every knee will bow. Every tongue confess, it's that day Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now, there's no reason to read this and to to read insincerity into what these people are saying. This word, Lord, it's a title of respect. It's used usually to, to call someone God. And using it twice, like Lord, Lord, in Greek, that implies an earnest intensity here. This is well-meaning. Lord, Lord. And the things that they've done, they're they're not made up. I mean, these are real things that they have done in the name of Jesus, for Jesus in their minds. Jesus, he responds to them. He says, I will tell them plainly, these people, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. 
uh, of those four words, I never knew you, Charles Spurgeon, he says, there's more thunder in those four words than you ever heard in the most terrible storm that has rolled over your heads. And I think he's right. I mean, it's like, wow, can you imagine? I never knew you. What does knowing mean? And that's the key here. Uh, This word, I never knew, um, it's the Greek word gnosko, and it means knowing experientially. Jesus is not saying, I never knew about you. Jesus knows about all of us. He's saying, I never experientially, relationally knew you. And this is reminiscent of the Pharisees, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, he said to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And this was so shocking because the Pharisees, they thought their hearts were closer to God than anyone else's. Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7, and this is so sobering, he's saying, you can honor me with your lips and you can even have a great resume. All the things you've done for me. I mean, I have never performed miracles in the name of Jesus. I mean, this this is amazing what these people have done. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. I never knew you. And the most haunting part of it is it's a surprise. Who he's talking about, they don't know until that day. So I think for us today, the the most important question we could ask is how can I know that I know Jesus (laughs) or that he knows me? Well, look at the, the text. Jesus connects knowing to something in verse 21. Look back. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is the key. Jesus is connecting knowing him or him knowing someone in verse 23 with doing the will of the Father in verse 21. The people who do the will of the Father, those are the people that Jesus knows experientially. Now, if you take this verse out of context and you just wave it around in the air, it feels a lot like we are saved by what we do, doesn't it? But doing the will of God does not just mean doing good works. It means believing that Jesus is the Messiah and relying on him alone for salvation. Look at what Jesus says in in John 6. The work of God, the will of God, it's this, to believe, to trust in the one he has sent. That's the work upon which all the other works are built. Listen, believing, trusting in Christ, we are saved by grace alone through faith, through trusting Jesus. That is what puts us in the relationship with God. So I want to clarify that. But, but, we can't stop there because Jesus doesn't. Because in the mind of Jesus, from relationship with God, we obey There is no category in Jesus' mind in this teaching for somebody who knows God, who is indifferent to the commands of God. It doesn't exist. And it's not out of a desire to earn anything. It's as a response. If Jesus is your rabbi, you, you you do your best to follow your rabbi. Jesus, and we've come back to this over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, his words to his disciples and to us today are not meant to be admired, but obeyed. That's what Jesus has been teaching. His words are not about us agreeing. Yes, I agree, but applying. 
So, so here's how I want to sum this up. Doing for God outside of relationship with God is deadly. Deadly. Because again, you can deceive your own heart into thinking you're in relationship and you aren't. But doing for God inside of relationship with God is vital. It's absolutely vital. And there's a connection in Jesus' mind between doing God's will and being known. You can see that in the text. Now, part of me, you all, is uncomfortable with this. And I want to mute or blunt the force of what Jesus is saying here. But, but here's how I want to leave you with this. We have got to, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is making us do. We've got to hold on to two truths at the same time, okay? That I am loved apart from anything I do. And what I do really, really matters. You can't just hold on to one. You hold on to the first one and your spiritual life will be hollow. You hold on to the second one and you're going to be a legalist. Either overcome with guilt or worse, you'll be deceived. And on that day, on that day, you get a rude awakening. And I think if we're not feeling a tension around these two things, then I don't know if we're really wrestling enough with this text. And this is what Jesus is doing as a brilliant communicator, teacher, rabbi. He is forcing us to a place of saying, no, obey, obey. And I really hope you come next week because we're going to dive deeper into this tension. But let's kind of zoom out and look at what Jesus has said to us. There's three warnings, okay? According to Jesus, we live in a world where there are two ways, there are two types of prophets and there are two types of followers of him. In which we choose, in each of those areas, is so important. In fact, there's nothing more important. There's nothing. And it seems to me what Jesus is saying in, in these three warnings to us is take great care, be so vigilant to follow Jesus, the way of Jesus, to listen to Jesus, and to know and obey Jesus. In sum it up, it's all about Jesus. You know, sometimes you, you listen to a sermon and it's like, hey, what was it about? Jesus? And you could say that every week. It's really true of this text. This is saying it's all about orienting your life around Jesus. Not just knowing about him, knowing him. Because we live in a world with false ways, false prophets, false versions of spirituality. And Jesus, again, he is warning us because he loves us. Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. And that's why he takes the tone that he does. And again, view this as Jesus' words to you today. Which of these three do you need to hear most? The uncomfortable, loving warning of Christ to you. Where do you need to hear it? And may we, all of us, may we not be hard of hearing. May, may we have ears to hear because the danger is more than we know and it's more serious than we realize. It really is. And there's so much at stake. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you 
Lord, in the midst of a tough text like this, God, we thank you for your grace that we never have to earn our way into relationship with you. But God, we also just acknowledge the uncomfortable reality that sometimes Jesus, he leans into and presses on the apathy that grows in our hearts, the indifference, um, the pride, the selfishness, all of that. And today, God, I just pray you'd give each of us ears to hear that we would respond to Jesus by applying what he says. God, may we not be people who just come and hear and nothing changes. Help us to know what it, what it looks like for us to take another step in following Christ. We thank you again for your grace that encompasses all of this, God, and it is your grace that enables us to obey and to follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.